You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. We'll see what happens in the days to come. But anyways, are you ready for the word this morning? Good. Well, let's dive into the word this morning. Let's pray real fast. Father, we thank you this morning that you are here. Again, we thank you that you are here. And that's what matters most. This morning, Jesus, we take our eyes off of everything we've seen this past week. And Father, we thank you that whatever the doctors might have said, yes, that might have been a fact, but facts are always subject to change. Your truth never changes. So this morning, we step into your truth. We receive your reality. This morning, we declare as whatever your word says about us is true. We declare that as Jesus is, so are we and our families in this world. We thank you, Father, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We thank you that all that belongs to the righteous man belongs to us. And Father, this morning is not to be selfish, but it's to say, if you paid for it, we receive it. If you paid for it, we receive it this morning, the fullness of it this morning. And so, Father, we thank you for all you've done. And more importantly, Father, this morning, we declare that you love us. We remind you that you love us, that you love us so much that we are your favorite sons and daughters in the city of Charlotte, even right now. So we thank you for what you've done, all that you are doing and all that you will do. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. If you have your Bible, can you turn to John chapter one? John chapter one. John chapter one. Now I'm going to have it up here, but before we uh, dive into John chapter one, what I want you to keep in mind, and um, this is one of the first things, again, I was printing the spirit, just singing some songs and uh, time flies. I haven't really had a good chance to do that in so long. You know, when you get married, you have a, a child and you have work, you're working 55 hours a week. You're just, you know, you're, you're, you're being pulled every different direction. You don't really have as much time as you thought you would have to sit down and just sing to the Lord and just pray in the spirit and have these moments. But I got a chance to, and this is one of the things the Lord showed me this morning first off. So I'm going to start here. Uh, but I want you to keep in mind before we dive into this real quick, uh, you know what? No, let's just read John chapter one. Let's pick up at verse 14. It says this. Uh, the Apostle John is talking and he's saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Now notice real quick, who is the word that became flesh? Jesus. We should make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus was the word that became flesh. He dwelt or lived among us. And John is saying, we as eyewitnesses, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, God treated Jesus like he was the only son he ever had. When everyone else in the room was sick, when everyone else in the room was worried, when everyone else in the room was uh, bad things were happening, John said we looked at him and the glory we saw in him was that God treated Jesus as if he was the only son that God ever had. Isn't that awesome? So we beheld the glory of him, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And what was that glory? It was full of and full of truth. You give birth to someone. I was joking um, with a guy here earlier. He said, man, you, you know, you can't deny your parents. You just look, you look just like them. And I started laughing. I said, I do. We look just like our parents. And you know, it reminded me even more so the verse we we're going to share this morning. Hey, you give birth to something that looks like you. When you give birth to your children, they are doomed to look like you. 
and some of you are graced, they look like you. <laughs> Amen, right? So yeah, yeah, you, you're bound to look like your parents. It is what it is. And Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. That means he looks like his Father. What does his Father look like? Full of grace, full of truth. You see that? Then verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. I love the amplified of this, but we won't detour. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. People who are still fighting for the law, let me say this. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then you come to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. Can you say bosom? Bosom. He is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. Now, the reason I put this in gold, and again, this is one of the first things the Lord showed me. And as soon as he gave me this, I saw the picture of the high priest. Where was Jesus before Jesus came? He was in the bosom, the heart of the father, the place of love, right? He was in God's place of love. And because he was the only son, he was the only one there. Now, notice right here, it says, when they saw him, it's not he who was in the bosom, it's he who is, because he is always in God's heart of love. But when Jesus came, he took all of us. And do you know that the Bible says this? Look at this. Watch this. Let me show you this real fast. Before we, before we move on, where is Jesus? In the bosom? The place of God's love. Watch this in Exodus 28. Just, just watch this. You don't have to turn there. Exodus 28, verse 29. God tells Moses, he says this, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment. Where? Oh, watch this. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. He's talking about Aaron as the high priest. He's talking about Aaron as a high priest who represents all the people to God. Right? And he says, when you come in, I want you to have all the names of the people over his heart. Then he says in verse 30, you shall put it on the breastplate of judgment, the Urim, which we talked about, the Tumim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, so Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. I'm telling you, when the Lord gave me this verse before, I saw this verse right after. And what the Lord showed me was this. Jesus was the only one in my heart, but he left that place to bring you in so that he could give you his place. Oh, man, when I saw it, I got so excited. You may not, but I got so excited. Because what does it mean? Hey, you are in the place of God's love. And Jesus was there. He is there, and he'll always be there. And everything Jesus had, has, and will always have, it's all because of where he was, his position. We are now in that position. You are always in that position. He left that place of God's love to bring all of us into that place where he will always be now and forevermore. You are secure in God's love. Safely secured in God's love. Yes. If the devil wants to attack you, he has to penetrate him first to get to his heart. And nothing can work. That's why, you know, when you talk about Psalm 23, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, the verse before that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? Do you know that shepherds, many times in uh, Jesus' day and still to this day, they would take the sheep and they would look for a place, not just where they were green, but they would look for a place that was enclosed, a place where there was like a cave where there's only one entrance in and one entrance out. And then they would lay down at the 
entrance. They would bring all the sheep in and they would lay at the entrance. And at night, they would sleep knowing that if the sheep wants to get out, he has to cross over the shepherd. Right? And then what they would do is they would call that the door of the sheep. All right? Because in a sense, they are the door. They're the only way into the sheep and the only way out from. All right? Now, keep in mind, when Jesus said that, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. What is he saying? If the devil wants to get to you, he has to get to me. That's why everything that comes against you, Satan can't actually touch you. All right? The, the spiritual forces, that they can't actually touch you. They're on the other side of the door screaming at us, throwing things at us, telling us everything's falling, they're doing everything they can at us. But Jesus is the door. And the only way they can touch you is if he moves and he'll never move. Because <laughs> we are safely and secured in his heart. Are you with me? So, I want to show you, if you could, can you turn to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, what I want to do is, um, some of you might remember last year we, we, we shared a, a sermon about, I think it was, um, we were talking about standing confidently on God's word. And I told you back then, I think it was last year, I told you back then I wanted to change the title to, my original title was, My Unbelief Doesn't Disqualify Me. Um, but I was afraid some people would mis- misinterpret that. So we, we decided to use it as standing confidently on God's word just to be safe. Cause I know that there's some people who don't come that do listen to our sermons. So I was listening to that. And again, the Lord, as he continued to give me verse after verse, I realized I felt impressed from the Lord to go back to that place. So I'm going to show you the story that we used back then, but I'm going to show you something I never saw before. All right. But before we get there, let's pick up in Hebrews chapter six In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, that's the middle of a a thought. Let me give you some context. He's talking about Abraham. He says, Abraham received the promise from God, but he had to wait for the promise. He had to wait. I mean, come on, there's some things that God has promised all of us. And if you were honest, it seemed like, well, well, Lord, you told me you'd give me this 10 years ago, five years ago, four months ago. Lord, you said this was going to happen. Where is it? Abraham received the promise, but he had to wait patiently. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, he didn't really patiently wait. He waited, and then he got tired of waiting, and he and his wife, his wife came up with an idea. <laughs> and out of that idea, his patiently waiting wasn't really patiently waiting. But let me say this, on this side of the cross, God doesn't record your sin. On this side of the cross, God doesn't record our failures. So as far as God is concerned, he patiently waited. And everyone said, Amen. We are patiently waiting. <laughs> All right. So anyways, it said Abraham patiently endured. But after he waited, he finally held the promise in his hands. Now, I love that story. And I try not to preach so much about Abraham because if I'm not careful, I'll only preach Abraham. But I love Abraham because Abraham is like all of us in Christ mm-hmm. under grace. When God gives you a promise, he's bound by his word. Even if you walk in unbelief, he is bound by his word. That's why God is very careful what he says, because God looks at your entire lifetime and he knows you inside out. He knows every mistake you'll make. He knows every time you'll walk in unbelief. And yet he still chose to go to the cross, die for you and give you the promise. Are you with me? I'm still going to give you the promise. Now, tomorrow, when you don't believe God anymore, your unbelief can't disqualify you because it's not based on you. It's based on the one who paid. Think about it like this. Now, I shared this last Sunday or two weeks ago when we were here. If I go and I buy this Bible, in fact, Mr. Haywood, can you hold this for a second? Let's say I'm, I want to buy this Bible from Mr. Haywood, all right? Now, I go to buy it, 
and I pay for it. All right? The Bible is not mine. I bought give it to me. I, I bought the Bible. He owned it. I paid for it from him. Right? But I'm buying it to give it to her. Now, she's holding it. It's hers because I gave it to her. But if she doesn't know that I paid for it, she might be careful to take advantage of it. Are you with me? Now, whose job is it to tell her the Bible has been paid for? My job. Right? Now, let me say this. Jesus went to the cross. He bought it for us. He gave it to us. Are you with me? He bought it. He gave it. Then he said, Matthew and other ministers, it's your job to tell them that it's been paid. And the problem is the church is going, but I I don't want to open it because I don't know if it's paid for. And we struggle taking advantage because we don't know if it's been paid for. But my job and the job of ministers, like all of you, is to tell people it has been paid. And because it's been paid, listen, if you don't take advantage, the only one who suffers is you. He can't buy what he's already paid for and given you. He's already, he can't buy it again. He's already paid for it. So he's bound by his word. Now, what if I never open the Bible? It doesn't change the fact it's still yours. Are you with me? So if you don't take advantage, you're the only one who suffers. Now, I'm going to say that graciously, right? Because many of us are going, well, how do we get from point A to point B? But we have to start here. It's been paid for. Can everyone say it's been paid for? I just love to keep reminding myself. I have to do that at work. Matthew, it's been paid for. It's legally been paid for. So we come to verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So if we make an agreement with each other, what we're going to do, you have my word to go on. But you know what? You say, well, Matthew might keep his word. He might not. Fine. Let's let's swear to each other. Now that silences all the arguments. Right. Verse 17. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly. To the heirs of promise, all of us, God wanting to show more fully, more abundantly to the heirs of promise, us, the immutability of his counsel. Wanting to show us that this is guaranteed, it will never change. He confirmed it by an oath. Now, God doesn't have to give a promise. God doesn't have to swear. But he said, you know what? I want to make sure that you are guaranteed, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are confident. Are you with me? That you are confident. That everything Jesus died to give you, you will get. Everything he died to give you, you will get. In order for me to do that, then I will swear to you. This is God who cannot lie. He doesn't have to. But he did it so that you will be confident. Watch this. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope, which is confidence, set before us. This hope, this confidence, this expectation we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me show you verse 19 one more time. This hope, what, what's the hope? Now, we can all say, well, Matthew, the hope is that one day we'll be in heaven. No, no, no. Let's make it today. Let's make it personal. Like Stephen said, let's make it personal. What are you believing God for? What are you believing God for? What's that thing you believed God for and it just seemed like too big of a task? So you believe for a while and you let go of it. And you know the reason why I say that? In John, I want to say it's in John's, no, it's in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel opens up with John the Baptist, his parents. And John the Baptist, his father, I think his name is Zacharias. 
Zechariah? Zechariah. He goes into the presence of God and the angel, I think it's Gabriel, angel, the angel Gabriel speaks to him and says, your prayer has been heard before God. But if you understand the Hebrew right there, not the, not the Greek, because it is written in Greek, but if you understand the Aramaic, because he would have been of Jew, if you understand the Aramaic, literally what the angel Gabriel would have said was, the prayer you stopped praying before God has still been heard. Are you with me? You stopped praying this years ago. Now you're an old man, you don't have any children, and you gave up. But I'm telling you, the prayer you stopped praying before God has been heard. It's gone before him in his ears. And now this is God's response. Now let me say this. We are on the other side of the cross. He was looking at the cross about to come and just years to come. We are on the other side. I'm telling you, the prayers that you have prayed, you stopped praying, have gone before his ears. Are you with me? Now watch this. This confidence, this confidence we have as an anchor for our soul. The devil's going to do everything he can to yell at you on the other side of the door. He's going to do everything he can to yell at you. It won't happen. It'll never happen. If it was going to happen, it would have happened. It's not happening because of this. It's not happening because of that. If you had done this differently, that would have happened. And he's going to do everything he can to tell you why it can't happen. But this morning, let me say this. This is your confidence. Let that confidence, let this confidence of what Jesus did for you, let that be the anchor for your soul. The boat might move a little to the left, a little to the right, but the anchor will always stay where it's supposed to be. Yes. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Are you still with me? Yes. Now let's move on. Can we do that? Yes. Let's look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9. Let's look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Now, we're going to look at the story of Jesus. Well, I'll give you the backdrop. Jesus has come down the Mount of Transfiguration. We were there. He comes down the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he comes down, keep in mind, when he goes up the Mount, he takes three of his disciples with him. Who does he take? Peter, James, and John. Peter, what does Peter mean? Stone, rock. John means to supplant or replace. John means, anyone know? Grace. Peter, James, and John, the stone replaced by grace. So he goes up with the story. The stone has been replaced by grace. The law will be replaced by God's grace. And he goes up onto the top of, Mount, of the Mount of Transfiguration. The presence of God comes down like a cloud. Jesus' clothes turn white. Peter, James, and John look up and go, oh my God, Moses is on one side, Elijah's on the other. And then they stand there and Peter speaks up, answers the question no one was asking. And when he answers the question, no one's asking. God speaks up before Peter can finish. This is my beloved son. Hear him. All right. So anyways, the very first thing Jesus says after that, after God speaks is this. Fear not. I love it. They're absolutely terrified. God speaks. They're shaking in their boots. They're terrified. And the first thing Jesus says to them is, don't be afraid. So he picks them up, they go down the mountain, and on their way down the Mount of Transfiguration, they see a crowd of people huddled together, and in the midst of it, if you follow in Mark's gospel, I think it's Mark, in the middle of it, you see Jesus' other disciples, uh, the other nine disciples, and they're arguing with the scribes in the temple. Now keep in mind, the scribes, they preached and they taught the Ten Commandments. They taught the people the law. They're fighting with Jesus' disciples. So Jesus comes down the mountain, and we pick up at verse 17. Oh, no, no, no. We're not here yet. He comes down the mountain and a man comes running to Jesus. And now we pick up at verse 17. He says, 
Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, most of us know the end of the story. If you don't, don't worry. But most of us know the end of the story. The answer that Jesus gives his disciples later on, they come to him and they say, Jesus, when we tried to cast out the demon, he wouldn't answer. What's the secret? How could you do it? And we couldn't. And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by, you know, and fasting, prayer and fasting. Last year, when we touched on the same story, I told you something that I still believe to this day. If we tell people the reason why you're not accessing the power of God is because of prayer and fasting. The question is this. How much prayer? How much fasting? Mm-hmm. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Because that gives Satan ammunition. Mm-hmm. You say, well, I, well, I'm not seeing the power of God like Pastor Matthew seeing the power of God. The enemy says, because you're not praying enough. You need to fast more. Okay, so I'm fasting more, I'm praying more, I'm fasting more, but I'm still not seeing the presence, I'm still not seeing the power of God in this area. I'm still not seeing the miracle. Well, you know, Matthew, he reads 15 verses, I'm sorry, 15 chapters a day. You only read two. (sighs) Okay, I got to read more. And you see what happens. Now you become you focused. You become you centered. So everything becomes how I can do more to get more. And you're right back under the the law. Are you with me? So are we saying Jesus lied? Of course not. But what we're saying is Jesus was trying to give us a secret that he couldn't give yet. If you want to know the secret to what he did, it was the prayer and fasting. Jesus fasted. Jesus prayed a lot. But let me say this. For us, prayer and fasting is necessary. I believe it's part of the Christian life. I do. I believe that with all my heart. Prayer and fasting should be part of our Christian life. But we do not have the power of God, the grace of God, because we pray and fast. Jesus did the prayer. Jesus did the fasting so that grace would always belong to you. Now, when we pray and fast, it's not to get something. It's a response to what he's already done. Is everyone still with me? All right, cool. So we want to know the secret. And again, I was reading this. The Lord gave me the story again. I went back and looked at it and I saw something I never saw before. One more time. Verse 19. Jesus answered the father and said to him, oh, faithless generation, you have no faith. (laughs) How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Let me answer. So we come to verse 20. Then they brought then they brought him to him. They brought the boy to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground, wallowed and foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now watch this. And often he's thrown him both into fire and to water to destroy him. But. I love this phrase, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us, right? Have compassion on us. I thought, is that mine? Oh, sorry. So one more time, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Now notice, you never see the father one time say faith. You never see him say faith. What do you see him do? Compassion. When I saw this, I'm telling you, last night, the Holy, I felt so impressed on the Holy Spirit. He said, remind me of my love for you. Remind me of my love for you. Do not remind me of what you've done. Remind me of my love for you. And I'm telling you, for the first time, I might have done it before, I don't know. But for the first time last night, it felt fresh and new for me. I was in the hotel room and I just started saying, Father, you love me. And then all of a sudden, I started drawing blanks. I didn't know what else to say. (laughs) 
So I just kept saying, Lord, you love me. You love, and I started telling Lord, you love me so much that you wouldn't let this happen. You love me so much that even if that happened, you wouldn't let this be the end. You love me. And I started reminding the Lord, you love me. Remind him of how he feels for you. And by the time I finished that prayer, I'm telling you, I, I didn't believe anything was possible. <laughs> I'm serious. In my heart, there was nothing that was impossible anymore. Just keep reminding yourself. And not remind yourself. Remind him. Remind the Lord that he loves you. I'm just You can do it now. You can do it when you get home. But my God, when you leave here, just remind God that he loves you. I'm a firm believer in reminding yourself that God loves you. But remind the Lord that he loves you. One more time. The Father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You want to talk about having faith? Watch this. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, I love he says this because he just disqualified that man. The man comes in and says, save my son. Please, if you have any compassion, do this for me. Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I need something impossible. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love it. (laughs) Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Which is it? Do you believe God or do you not believe? Where are you? And you know what the beauty of this is? The beauty of not believing and trying to believe at the same time. If you can believe, all things are possible. Who is the only one who can believe? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can believe and not waver in his unbelief. Don't get me wrong. When we get to heaven one day, the books will be open. And before you receive your crown, I believe it'll be read out loud. Matthew believed God and Matthew did not waver in his unbelief. Matthew believed God for his, for the son, that his son would be, uh, would be healed and he did not waver in his unbelief. Matthew believed God for, uh, for his marriage and did not waver in his unbelief. I mean, whatever you're believing God for, Mr. Haywood believed God. It won't say Mr. because you know, I call him Mr. But let's say Mr. Haywood believed God <laughs> and did not waver in his unbelief. I mean, you see what I'm saying? We can go down the line. When the books are open in heaven, it will. It, that's what it'll look like. You believed God, you did not waver. But here on earth, we waver. That's the reality. We waver, and we were taught for so long: if you don't believe God, you won't get it. If you can't believe, I'm telling you, the opposite of faith is what? Oh, come on! He says all the time. The opposite of faith is fear. And what do we see in God's word? First John chapter four: perfect love cast out. The opposite of faith is not. Fear, the opposite of faith, I'm sorry, the opposite of fear is not faith. The opposite of fear is love. Perfect love, cast out fear. You know what the opposite of faith is? The law. As long as you are doing something, faith can't work for you. That's why I'm telling you, my God, even when you waver through unbelief, even when you're absolutely terrified, God, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm telling you, Jesus disqualified all of us in the room this morning. You are disqualified. You can't believe enough. You know why? Because if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. None of us fall in that category because all of us stop believing at some point. (laughs) All of us fall into fear at some point. Jesus disqualified that father. And the father being desperate cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, what should Jesus say? Well, all things are possible to him who believes. I wish I could help you, but you have unbelief as well. All right, guys, let's pack up and let's move on. Is that what Jesus said? When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Watch this. Jesus saw people were coming and the demon was going to get the attention. So what does he do? He rebukes the unclean spirit and says to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead so that many said he is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Oh, I love this story. I love this story. Because what is he saying? For me, it was remind me of my love for you. Remind me how much I love you. Tell me how much I love you. It's just, you know, I don't even know how that works in the marriage yet. My wife is at the beach. But I'm telling you, (laughs) that was a fresh revelation for me. Remind me of how much I love you. Tell me how much I love you. And see what happens. Last night, I'm telling you, in my heart, there was nothing impossible. Nothing is impossible. And this morning, I got up doing it again. Now, let me, let me come on the downside of this. Let's, let's close with this. Most of us use our faith for just about anything we can think of across the board. I'm not, I'm not judging anyone. Most of us use our faith for just about anything across the board, right? I'm believing for this. I'm believing for that. And I think all those things are great. But I, we've talked about this before, and I want to show you this in the Passion Translation in just a moment, or the message first. I'll show you the message. But I want you to see this. Jesus is going to simplify things for all of us, all right? All things are possible to him who believes. Jesus, one time he was, uh, I think he was in Capernaum because we were there at the house. He was in Capernaum and he was preaching in the house of Peter and they took off the roof of the house. Remember that story? And they lowered the paralyzed man right in the middle of the meeting. And Jesus looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Right? Looking up, the Bible says he saw their faith. He looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Then the Pharisees who are in the room start judging Jesus. Who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? And Jesus said this. He said, which is easier for me to say, which is easier for any of us to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and be healed, rise and rise up and walk. Now, which is easier for us to say? Your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because nobody can see that. <laughs> Only God can see that. But if I look at you and say, rise, stand up and walk and you don't, you understand, I look like the idiot. I like the dummy. So it's easier for us to say, your sins are forgiven. But I ask you, which is easier for Jesus to say? Rise, get up and walk. You know why? Because in order to forgive sins, Jesus has to die. So that is harder for Jesus to say. But Jesus wants to put faith into the man. So he tells him, your sins are forgiven first. Then he tells him to rise, get up and walk. When you know your sins are forgiven, faith comes. All right. Now, knowing that. What's harder for Jesus to say? Your sins are forgiven. Now watch this. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his and all these things shall be added to you. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to I really want to bring out verse 32. So look at this in the message. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen. Don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. (laughs) I love the message on this one. I'm telling you, whatever you need, whatever you're using your faith for, let me say this. The world is trying to chase after those things. Jesus is going to simplify it for all of us. Are you ready? Instead of chasing after all those things, instead of using your faith 
All right. If we're, if, we're, if you think about it, the world is chasing after this. They're pursuing all these things. We try to use our faith to get ahead in life. Jesus is saying, don't even use your faith for that. Use your faith for what? To seek first the kingdom of God and his. We already have the kingdom because we have Jesus. From now on, use your faith to believe you are right with God. Use your faith to believe you're right with God. Can you say to say, I am the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God. In Christ. In Christ. Say it again. Say, I am. The righteousness, the righteousness of God, of God in, Christ. in Christ. Now use your faith every day for that. When you use your faith for that, everything else will be added to you. Everything else. Oh man. Now let me close with this. Let me show you the story of Samson real quick. In fact, I won't spend much time here. I want to bring you to Romans. I won't spend much time here. I'm show you the story. We'll breeze through it. I'll show you Romans and we'll close. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. Let me show you this in Judges. Judges chapter 14, if you remember the story of Samson, if you don't, it's okay. But in Numbers chapter 6, God gives the requirements of a Nazarite. A Nazarite cannot cut his hair. A Nazarite cannot touch a dead body or a dead carcass. And a Nazarite cannot drink uh, anything that comes from the vine. Can't drink wine. All right. Now, those are the three requirements for a Nazarite. There's a few more, but those are the main three. Everything falls under those categories. You can't cut your hair. You can't touch a dead body. You can't drink wine. So when God comes to his parents, he says, look, he comes to his mother first. He says, look, you're about to have you're about to give birth to a son, but he'll be a Nazarite. So don't cut his hair and you don't drink any wine. But he goes on. Now, God doesn't mention the other two, even though those are the requirements. The one that God mentions is this. Don't cut his hair. Are you with me? Now, when you follow that story in Judges chapter 14, Samson has been born. Samson hates the Philistines. The Philistines hate Samson. We come to 14, verse 5. It says, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. I want you to see this. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. Though he had nothing in his hand. But he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down, talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. Verse 8. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they also ate. But he did not tell him that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Now, why is that so important? Because Nazarites are not supposed to touch a dead body. Now, I want you to note. The Lord came on him. God graced him. He kills the lion. He takes the honey from the lion. Are you with me? Watch this. After he does this, I'm not going to show you all this. There's a lot of verses. After he does this, all right, he disobeys. He breaks the vow by touching a dead body. Do you know he goes to the Philistines? He tries to go marry his bride. He gambles. He makes a bet with them. He gives them a riddle. They solve the riddle. They cheat, but they solve the riddle. Then he goes, he kills 30 men. Philistines takes their clothes after they're dead. He gives it to the men who won the riddle. Then verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon, killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house. Now watch this. If we say grace only comes to people, healing only comes to people, favor, protection only comes to people who are doing what they're supposed to do. Why did God give Samson the grace to kill 30 men when it was Samson's fault? 
God never told Samson to give them the riddle. God never told Samson to go and try to marry that young girl in Timnah. God never told him to do it. In fact, he was acting against what God would have wanted someone to do. And yet, God still gave him the grace to go kill 30 men, take their clothes, and pay off his debt. Isn't that... (laughs) I'm telling you, you can follow the story for yourself. We don't have time. But even in Samson's last breath, we said this two weeks ago, in his last breath, he didn't say, oh God, give me the grace so that I, because I repent, I'm such a horrible sinner, I've made so many mistakes, now give me the grace and the strength to defeat the Philistines one more time. He said, God, give me the grace, give me the power so I can kill them for taking my eyes. I want revenge. And God said, great, here's the grace for it. Now what's the secret? You want, you want my opinion? This is my opinion. Samson was confident. He was confident that God hated the Philistines. Let me say this. Be confident that God hates that thing that's hurting you. Be confident that God hates that sickness. Be confident that God hates that disease. Be confident that God hates when bad things are happening around. God hates all of it. Be confident. Don't say, well, you know, if the Lord, you know, if the Lord, maybe. No, no, no. Be confident that God hates it. That God despises it with everything in him. Because if he didn't hate it, he wouldn't have sent his son. So be confident that God hates it. Even when it comes to uh, uh, the the favor and the provision, be confident that God hates your lack. God hates seeing your hands empty. God hates seeing your empty bank account, your empty storehouses. God hates seeing that. And God hated it so much he sent his son to die poor so that you could always be rich. God hates it. Be confident that God hates those things. And even when it's your fault, I'm telling you, the Spirit of the Lord will come on you so you can kill all the Philistines. Now let me close with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Last verse. The Apostle Paul says, So now I live with the confidence. Not, well, if it's God's will one day. No. Now I live with the confidence. Not the uncertainty, not the surety, not the hope. I hope one day God will do this. No. Now I live with, can you say confidence? Confidence. Listen, be confident. God hates it. (laughs) God hates it. Now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. Remember how we opened the sermon? You are in the place where Jesus was, in the place where he still is. That's where all of us are. That's where all of us are right now. There is no power above us or beneath us. No power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Aren't you glad? Nothing can separate you. Nothing can move you out of that place. Listen, do you think God is so happy that you're in this place of love, but you're hurting? You're so, you think God is happy you're in that place of love, but you're lacking, you're missing, you're beaten, you're bruised, you're tired? No! God is angry! Oh, that was so, thank you for saying amen. God is angry at the predicament you find yourself in because his love for you is so great. So let me say this, even when you don't deserve it, even when you have failed, even though you have done everything wrong that you could have possibly done, even when you're like Samson, you're just being selfish, give me revenge. Even when you have the wrong motives, God is bound to his word to do it. But let me say this, he'll do it because he loves you. Let your confidence rest on God's love for you. I'm saying just let your confidence rest on God's love for you. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning again for your heart for all of us.
This morning, Father, I say this for everyone in here. I thank you that you love us tremendously. Father, this morning we remind you that you love us tremendously. We remind you that you love us passionately. Father, that you love us uh, unconditionally, truly unconditionally. Father, this morning I remind you that because you love everyone in this room this morning, because you love us, the things that we've stopped asking you for have gone before you. Even this morning, even this week, they're beginning to change. Father, the areas that we've put before you before, the things we stopped praying for, even this morning, because you love us, you're beginning to move in those areas. Father, I thank you for whatever request has been put before you this week. I thank you even this week, Father, because you love us, you're answering those prayer requests. Father, whatever concerns anyone walked in here with, whether it's for family, for friends, even for themselves, because you love us, you're answering those requests. And Father, whatever you've put in the hearts of anyone, anyone to dream for something, to reach out for something, to pursue a goal, to pursue a destiny, to pursue an amazing future, whatever you've put in the hearts of everyone in here, I remind you that because you love us, you are fulfilling those things even now, even now. Father, because you love us, you're surrounding us with the right people to propel us and take us further, further down the road to where you've called us to be. Father, I thank you that we, none of us have arrived in that promised land yet, but Father, we see it. We see it. In Christ, we see it. And we thank you that we have already stepped into what you have for us because you love us. We say it by faith. Thank you for bringing us in because you love us. So Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done, Lord. Can you just take a moment real quick? We're closing. Just out of your own heart, tell him thank you. Just remind him out of your own heart. Just take a minute just to remind him that he loves you. Remind him that he loves you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, because you love us, you've never left us alone. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because you love us, nothing is impossible for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Because you love us, you won't let our family go. Because you love us, you won't let any of our brothers or sisters, our cousins, our relatives go without knowing you first. They will know you. They will declare you because you love me. Thank you, Jesus. Not one will be lost because you love us. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I remind you this morning that we are the church in Charlotte that you love. We are the church in Charlotte that you love. And because we are the ones that you love, we thank you that you are adding to us. You are giving us the wisdom to continue to build. You're giving us the grace to build. You're giving us all the tools we need. You are surrounding us with the right people, putting the right words in their mouths to tell us and lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. So, Father, we thank you that you are building our church, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Father, I thank you that you are establishing everyone in here in your health. You're establishing everyone in here in your wealth. You are establishing everyone in here in your favor. And Father, I thank you that as they are established, even though the enemy might attack seven ways, I thank you because we are your righteousness in this earth. There is no weapon formed against anyone in here that can prosper over us, our families, over our homes, over anything you have given us. So this morning, Father, I thank you that again that you are establishing everyone in here, everyone in here, in your grace. And we receive it this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.